Hello and welcome to Horror Court Trash Over, the show that discusses all of the masterpieces and trash to pieces of genre cinema. I'm Gary. And I'm Chris. And we're back for another month of Original vs. Remake. Yes. Well, not yeah. a full month, but it's the end of the month. It's a monthly episode. You get the gist. Yes. <laughs> and uh, today isn't just uh, another Original vs. Remake episode. Today is our 250th episode. Bloody hell, 250. We are halfway to 500, and people are still here, still listening, and we are forever grateful for it. Yes, yes, thank you very much for listening to us 250 times, if you have, or yeah. even if just once, or twice, yeah. even if this is your first time listening to us, welcome. Yeah. That's, that's thank what, you, thank you to everyone. That's what keeps us releasing episodes, knowing that people care. Uh, and for episode 250, uh, we got ahead of ourselves with the schedule and didn't schedule in an extra special bonus episode, but we are discussing... A original versus remake duo where both films are great films. And that's worth celebrating in itself. That is a treat. That is a treat. If you're aware of some of the remakes we've had to go through over the last 250 episodes. That's true. I mean, you'll realise that this, this is good. It's been a while, though, since we had a bad remake. Um, yeah, I suppose so. I yeah. mean... 250 of them, I don't remember them all. Yeah. All the episodes, so... I mean, last few months we've had <laughs> The Ring, we've had... Uh, <laughs> Clearly Gary's much better at this than Slumber me. Slumber Party Massacre. Oh, I mean, yeah. even Terror Train, the remake was at least fun. Um, yeah, if anyone knows how we can watch Terror Train <laughs> 2 in the UK, by the way. Yes. We still need to watch that. We do. Um, but today, we, again, another solid duo. We yes. are discussing both versions of... The Crazies. Yeah. George A. Romero's cult classic. And it's surprisingly good remake. Yeah. No spoilers. But yeah. yeah. Well, get into those poll results. In the words of Lamar, it's 50-50. And it's not often. I think we've had that once before, maybe? It's definitely not a regular occurrence, having a 50-50 poll results. No, not dead on 50-50 yeah. as well. That's um, justified. It is. It justified. Is. As yeah. Justin... Oh, no, wait. We don't talk Justin No, we don't talk about it. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so... Yeah. This duo is an interesting one. Because the Crazies, which we're going to discuss first, from 1973, I had no idea it existed when the remake came out. Because, I mean, it wasn't exactly a massive horror film... Uh, and the only reason it's kind of well known now is because it's directed by George Romero. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, to be perfectly honest, my history with the crazies is I watched Night of the Living Dead, loved it, thought it was amazing. I bought the box set of the Living Dead trilogy, watched all three, thought they were the best thing I'd ever watched. Still to this day, three of my favourite films. And Anchor Bay brought out the DVD of The Crazies. And I was like, George Romero, I'll watch it. And I assumed, you know, along with Martin, that these were big films that everyone loved in George Romero's filmography. Yeah. Apparently not. Apparently these are cult, 
and the crazies in particular are cult film. Yeah, crazies is massively underappreciated and underseen as well. Um, so you know, as you mentioned, written and directed by George Romero, uh, who of course is the horror giant behind Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead, Creep Show, Martin, Night Riders, The Dark Half, Monkey Shine. So the list goes on. Um, we did well. We did. Actually, that's not very fair because Bruiser is probably his worst film. Yeah. I was just about to say, we did a marathon of his films. He is honestly one of my favourite directors. I was surprised um, because we did Toby Hooper marathon as well. And I kind of, I put them too close together. They've had like similar career paths Mm. um, with a few things here and there. Um, No, George Romero blows it out of the water. Like he is such a good director, and he he never really made apart from the trilogies of the dead, uh, the modern ones and the original ones. He rarely makes two films the same, and that's something to be admired. But even the original trilogy, they are very different. Oh, they films. were very different. Yeah, sim- yeah. Sim- you know, they're zombie films. Yeah, but they they go at it from a different angle each time. Yeah. And I don't want to go on too much of a tangent, but you mentioned Toby Hooper. Toby Hooper, in my opinion, is one of those directors that only had one five-star masterpiece. Mm. And I know you disagree with that, but in my opinion. Whereas when you look at the percentages of... Because George Romero wasn't the most prolific director ever. No. From what I've seen, the percentage of his films that I deem five-star classics is pretty fucking high. It is. Yeah. And, yeah, Bruiser's the lowest. We haven't seen Survival of the Dead. The I, haven't, I haven't seen the, like, Diary of the Dead. I haven't seen anything post-Land of the Dead. And Land of the Dead weren't the best. But I would say Bruiser's his worst film. It's not that bad. Mm. I would probably watch it again sometime in the future. Um, but percentage-wise, I mean, he's... He's up there as some of the best, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you you look at something like Martin. I think Martin's a masterpiece. You know, Creepshow is a classic. Knight Riders is absolutely bonkers and probably shouldn't work as well as it does. But it's a fantastic film. Wait, Bruiser isn't his worst film. No. There's Always Vanilla. Oh, There's Always Vanilla. There's Always Vanilla is a terrible film. That was really bad, yeah. Okay. Season of the Witch had a bit of a charm to it. But, it was um, all right. But, you know, it, yeah. he is, either way, his good really oh, outweighs yeah. his bad. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, some directors, you can, you can watch a film, you're like, okay, that's definitely this director, that's this director. It's different. It, it's kind of difficult to tell with Romero. He never really has that signature thing in there, other than some of the same actors. Yes. But aside from that, you know... Yeah, it's just, it's, it's great. He's a great director, and yeah. this is really a film that deserves more attention. And I think that's why it got the remake, like you said. Yeah. The fact that it was, I think by 2010, they'd maybe ex- had exhausted a lot of the classic oh, God, yeah. Um, yeah. remakes. You know, it's the same year as Nightmare on Elm Street when they finally did that one. Um, but all the classics really had had their remakes by that point. The scene in Scream 4 where Kirby lists off every horror remake from the last 10 years really says it all. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of films for it to list off. It it was crazy in that time when, forgive the pun, um, you know, 
I was properly into horror by this point and it was just remake after remake after remake after remake coming out and it kind of got to the point that I thought some of them were good and they rewatching them now after better films have been released after I've watched better films some of the ones I thought were good aren't so good thankfully today's one does hold up um but yeah it's it's why when we do these episodes and we have a remake from this era and we're really surprised that it's good watch some of the other ones and you'll see yeah. why we're so surprised watch prom night or when a stranger calls and you'll see why we're surprised <laughs> Yeah, but they're remakes of what were bigger films. Yeah. But I, th- I think in this case it was, what have we got left to do? Yeah. George Romero directed this film called The Crazies mm-hmm. that has some sort of cult following over the years. It's got a great premise to it. Zombies are big. Make it a little more zombified. And, you know, you're on to a winner. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think they did well. Yeah. So, the basis of the original was a script by Romero's friend and co-worker Paul McCullough, who um, who wrote it under the title The Mad People. Well, the mad they are. Can't take them anywhere. <laughs> McCullough gave the script to Romero with his blessing to rewrite it, and Romero turned it into a revised version uh, that was eventually made into The Crazies. And it was made on a budget of $275,000, a fucking micro-budget, and yeah. it only made 143700 at the box office it's surprising i'm assuming that martin did well mm. because was martin before this or after after so this was his well i think there's always vanilla and season of the witch came after night of living dead and then there was this and then martin yeah and then mm. dawn of the dead uh-huh. i believe because uh, Dawn of the Dead had a fairly big budget. It did, if yeah. If I remember. But I think because it was a sequel to Night of the Living Dead, yeah. which was a huge film. But you'd have thought with Night of the Living Dead being so big, you know, another horror film from Romero, people would have wanted to go see it. Yeah, yeah. It, it's a shame, really. But, you know. It was uh, filmed in Evans City and uh, Pennsylvania. And many of the film's bit players were locals. Uh, several of the white-suited soldiers were actually high school students. No, does enjoy doing that. Yeah, no Hollywood stuntmen were used in the crazies. Local firemen and licensed fireworks professionals handled all the action sequences, including the creation and employment of uh, blood scripts. Also, uh, Romero's first union film as well. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, because obviously Night of the Living Dead was... Yeah. Micro, <laughs> yeah, independent, like majorly independent, which is probably why it's uh, got no copyright anymore. <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, he loved filming in Pennsylvania. Well, I, I swear one of his films was his first Hollywood film, was it? Maybe in Creepshow, maybe was, been right wasn't right. Dawn the Dead? No, no, that was that was Monroeville in uh, Pennsylvania. Oh, yeah, or was it Monkey Shines? Potentially. Monkey, maybe monkey. Oh, my, I, might, I may be getting mixed up, but yeah. yeah. Let's His talk... early films are Pennsylvania. Yeah. Definitely, through and through. Let's talk about our first feature presentation. I've taken me no place. Oh, man, this is easy. They started something they can't stop. The crazy. We can make it. I know it. 
lethal terror snowballs into hell. The crazies. Rated R. Yes, in Evans City, Pennsylvania, a man kills his wife and burns down his fire uh, his farmhouse. His firehouse, yeah. Firehouse. Yes. Well, firehouse. you know, technically that's true. Uh, burns down his farmhouse with his son and daughter still inside. Um, yeah, really disturbing opening. Yeah. Um, would you call, you'd call this a cold opening, wouldn't you? It is, especially means it kind of opens really camp with the kids like. The son's trying to scare the daughter yeah. by unscrewing light bulbs and shining the torch at her. It's like, okay, this fucking stupid kid. And then next minute, it's like, oh, wow, he's going to fucking murder them. Yeah, well, she discovers her mum dead in yeah. bed. And then the uh, the father's going crazy in the kitchen, smashing stuff up. And then he sets the, the farmhouse on yeah. fire. You know, it's actually really quite disturbing, you know. I love a film that gets to it straight yeah, away. Yeah, like this, yeah. this is what you're getting, and this the tone is... doesn't stop from there onwards. No, like this is a really bleak and disturbing film. It is very downbeat, very downbeat film from start to finish. It really is. Um, we're introduced to firefighters David and Clank, who are both veteran uh, Vietnam War veterans, and they're called to the scene of the fire. David's pregnant girlfriend, a nurse named Judy, is called to the office of Dr. Brookmeyer, where the two children are being treated for their burns. Uh, now, Judy looks like Catherine Zeta-Jones. We're introduced to her in bed with David. Mm-hmm. And uh, we get, I'm not sure why, but we, we just topless in bed. Yeah. So we get... Well, they've just uh, got it on. Well, they've just... Well... Seemingly. He's topless. I mean, is it the morning or night? I thought it was the morning, but it's night time, isn't it? Yeah. it's dark out. So, yeah, they, she's just gotten a... He's just gotten his end away. And uh, they're both called away. She looks like Catherine Zeta-Jones. And uh, for the whole film, she's kind of dressed like Paddington Bear. <laughs> she is. <laughs> Show appreciate. And uh, David has a rather distracting monobrow throughout the whole film. <laughs> Now, I'm not judging anyone. You know, it's up to you uh, how you want to uh, keep your face. Um, I am someone who maybe has to deal with a monobrow <laughs> on the other occasion. But it was very distracting. I'm not going to lie. It was, yeah, no, no, yours is very distracting. You know, can you see? My, I'm wearing glasses. So. <laughs> I, don't, I don't do it anymore. Now I wear glasses. I just stick it to my uh, eyebrow. Uh, heavily armed US troops led oh, by... Oh, before you move on, you know, you said about the Ooh. hospital. Uh, the girl actually dies. Um, she and does. And they try saving the boy, and we actually don't know what happens there. But yeah, I mean, at that point, it's kind of like, okay, well, clearly no one's safe in this film. I think if you kill the kids straight away, yeah, yeah I think no one's safe. And like we said, very dumb. Was this the same... Year or around the same time as Assault on Precinct 13 when um, that house thief, Kim Richards... Oh, no, Carl stole her house, sorry. Carl stole The victim of a house theft. Um, she got killed in Assault on Precinct 13 around the same time? I think so, yeah. 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 70s war. I think it was Lisa Rinna, wasn't it? Who, uh, who was talking about her <laughs> husband and she shot her. Uh, heavily armed US troops led by Major Ryder take over Dr. Brookmeyer's office. We learn that days earlier, an army plane carrying a bioweapon had crash landed near the town, infecting the water supply with a virus codenamed Trixie Mattel. Oh, Trixie. 
which is highly contagious and causes victims to either die or become hysterical and homicidally insane. Uh, that's hom- hom- homicidally, not homosexually insane. <laughs> Which is our water supply. (laughs) Um, Yeah, this is our first glimpse at one of the many political themes of the film. Yeah. Um, Very heavy on the political commentary. Very heavy. Something that George Romero did freely throughout his whole career. Yeah, I mean, you know, I said, as I said, there's not really a uh, specific sort of trademark that carries through Romero's films. But if any films are similar to each other, it's definitely The Crazies and Night of the Living Dead with their political themes and kind of the setting of the film as well. Yeah. And then um, obviously Dawn of the Dead was about, you know, consumerism. Yeah. Um, so I think it's it's a it's a theme. for, And I'm, I'm sure that, you know, if we analyse Martin, we could find something there. Because I, I do think it's something that he makes a point of bringing to his film. Okay, Martin is about being gay. Let's not beat around the bush. Yeah, that's probably, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so in this case, the political theme that we, we see is the fear of bioweaponry and nuclear war. So in 1973, you know, the Cold War was, you know, still going, you know, it went on till 1991, really. And there was a lot of political paranoia around the Cold War, which led to increases in weaponry testing. And what's interesting in this case is that the whole Cold War was the fear of the Soviet Union and their nuclear power, their bioweaponry, but it's the US government itself that has caused harm to its residents and not some outside Eastern Bloc danger. And I think that's very interesting. this is very ironic considering recent circumstances of recent years. Yeah, but, but Taylor's older time, that yeah. shit. Taylor, you know, that's going on for, for ages. Um, so government officials send Colonel Peckham, uh, <laughs> not not the place in London, uh, Colonel Peckham and Dr. Watts, who worked on the creation of the virus, they're sent to Evans City to contain the virus and work towards a cure. It's very, very clear from the outset that the military and Dr. Watts are completely ill-equipped for the task. Huge part is that they have absolutely no idea what they're doing, really. Um, I think what's really interesting is that obviously Dr. Watts worked on the creation of the virus, but seemingly had no intentions of working on a cure for the virus Mm -hmm. because it wasn't meant to be used on American citizens. And now it has, so now he's working against the clock yeah. to figure out a cure for it. Colonel Peckham, who um, isn't very pleased to be there, <laughs> to no. be honest, uh, explains himself that he's there because he is um, expendable. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's, his heart's not in it. So everyone's screwed, basically. Everyone's fucked. Uh, Martial law is declared in Evans City and a quarantine is placed on the town. Army soldiers forcibly move the townspeople into a high school, rousting many from their homes, and they shoot anyone who attempts to escape. Bombers armed with nuclear weapons are dispatched to destroy the town if necessary. Amongst this, we get one of the film's uh, glimmers of camp hope. The 
Um, is it camp or is it old? It is camp <laughs> as fuck. Soldiers go into one house where a queen is casually playing piano and she continues playing piano whilst they're walking about. Um, and an older lady upstairs is casually knitting um, and then just walks up to a soldier and just fucking stabs him with a knitting needle. Yes. And she sits back down and like the soldiers come in again and one of them's like, ma'am, she's like, hello. Hello, <laughs> hello how are you? Um, the lasting image of the film and the one used in all the marketing that I've seen is of the soldiers in the hazmat suits. Yeah. And not actually the crazies themselves. So the film is called The Crazies. Mm-hmm. Um, the crazies are the townspeople. Mm-hmm. The lasting image, the true horror of the film... And the one used on the posters, on, you know, ask anyone about the film, it's what they know it for, is the soldiers themselves, the military, in these hazmat suits. And I think that's very telling of the commentary that's taking Uh place within this film. Uh, Because I think it's certainly no mistake, as we see the military manhandling and killing without feeling the need to explain what is happening. Yeah. We also see soldiers stealing from the homes of some of the uh-huh. residents. And um, the film questions how much trust we put in the government and military as they essentially police themselves. They caused this and are shoddily handling the aftermath and there's nothing that anyone can do about it. No. So you see it throughout the film, you see people fighting back. Mm-hmm. But they're also ill-equipped to fight back. And they're treated as crazies. So they're treated the same as the crazies are treated. They're killed freely mm-hmm. without knowing if they're crazy or not. And, you know, burnt. Their corpses are burnt yeah. as well. So it also brings up the Vietnam War. Not only with David and Clank both being Vietnam War veterans but with its depiction of military brutality in many ways referencing the Vietnam War itself, but also the Kent State shootings in 1970, where peaceful student protests against the Vietnam War ended in four students being killed by the Ohio National Guard. Mm -hmm. So the whole, and it, it brings up the Cold War as well, and the Vietnam War, and the whole idea is these outside forces that we're meant to be fearful of. Yeah. But it's actually, the calls are coming from inside the house. Mm -hmm. It's actually our own government that has caused this. It's our own government that we're fearful of and should be fearful of, Mm -hmm. really. Yeah. And I think it's really interesting. And and to to bring all that into, I I don't necessarily see this as too much of a horror film. I mean, it is in many ways a horror film, but I would call it an action above anything else. But to bring this into the film, it's really, really interesting. Yeah. You know I love a film. It is. Yeah. Uh, David, Judy, Clank, teenager Kathy Fulton, played by legend Lynn Lowry, and her father Artie, trying to find a way to escape the town after being thrown together in the back of a van, probably on the way to being dumped at the high school. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kathy is off from the get-go. Yeah. It... it from the moment you see her, you're like, okay, 
she's been infected. Yeah. But her father is completely in denial. Mm-hmm. He's all I've got. She's all I've got. You know. After spending the night hiding in a country club, the group attempts to escape through the nearby woods, eluding soldiers both on the ground and in an overhead helicopter. And these group, throughout the majority of the film, almost the whole film, their antagonists are the military. Yeah. The ones they're hiding from and they're fearful of are the military. Mm Mm-hmm. Not the crazies. Yeah. The, you know, Kathy is crazy from the start, but she's actually never a threat to the others. Um, It's the military are the ones that are going to shoot them on sight. Mm -hmm. They overpower several soldiers in a house. One of the soldiers discloses what he knows about the virus to David. But when one of the soldiers reaches for his gun, Clank opens fire and kills the soldiers. David confides with Judy about what he knows about the virus and tells her that Kathy, Artie and probably Clank are infected. Um, yeah, it's very clear that Clank yeah. is infected. So we're definitely going to have that sad moment. Look, it's it's one thing about the film is that Kathy and Artie are kind of expendable characters. Mm. <laughs> they don't really have yeah. too much. Um, also interesting again, the soldiers are talking very flippantly about the whole situation before they enter the house, mm-hmm. you know, um, acting as if it's just another day, even though they are killing people. Yeah. And they are killing people not actually 100% knowing if they're crazy or not. After Clank beats him for attempting to have sex with Kathy, Artie hangs himself. Kathy wanders outside and is killed by the soldiers. Um, very jarring. It is. Um, it's, for me, the low, low light of the film. Mm. Because I don't understand the purpose. To have, you know, the Kathy and Artie and Artie potentially forcing himself on Kathy and, and whatever. I don't want to get into too much of the details of it. But to have that scene, it's it's difficult to understand fully what's going on and therefore what the purpose is. If it's mm. just a shock, um, it feels weird and, and jarring. And it's, yeah. With, um, with Kathy's death scene. Yes. Um, Lil Lowry actually told Femme Fatale's magazine that she wasn't happy with the way she died in the film. She said that being an actress and all actresses are hams at heart. She wanted to have the big death scene where she got to fall down and get back up and stagger around before she died. But Romero just wanted it very simple where she was shot, says, oh, and falls down. Uh, At the time, she thought it was kind of dumb, but came to appreciate it over time. I think it's campus tits. I I think it is. Oh. It's different as well. It it is different. It's a memorable death scene. It is. You know, because she is crazy. She doesn't know what's going on. And she's like, oh. You know, and then collapses. Mm -hmm. Uh, Lynn Lowry, by the way, um, cult cinema icon. She is. In David Cronenberg's Shivers and Cat People. Mm -hmm. She was amazing in um, I Drink Your Blood. Yes. Um, yeah, cool cinema, B-movie, legend. And if you'd like to see her hamming it up, 
because all actresses are hams at heart. Yeah. We have one of her films showing at Gasp Film Festival. That we do. I could not believe it when we got it through. She is in Wolf Hollow alongside Felissa Rose. Yes. Um. Yeah, and it, she is just the highlight for me. She is, she's so good in it. Um, pretty much playing Faye Dunaway. <laughs> yeah. Uh, name dropping other celebs, just being calm, but it's just, yeah. Uh, Wolf Hollow is a really great film, and we usually do the plug at the end of the episode, but if you would like to see Wolf Hollow, and would like to attend Gasp Festival as a whole, it's Gasp Horror Fest across all social media, you'll find all the details you need. Yes. Uh, Realising he is infected, Clank kills several soldiers to give David and Judy time to escape. He is then shot and killed. Um... Kind of sad moment. I wasn't a huge fan of Clank. I, I never noticed enough to him to I give think a shit. It was giving toxic masculinity yeah. a little bit. Uh, the next night, Judy, now visibly infected, is killed by armed civilians. Angry and frightened, David surrenders to the military. And after being taken into custody, David eventually realises that he is immune to the virus. But he keeps the knowledge to himself. Um, Judy... We barely knew thee. No. Which is a shame because she had such a good start. Like, she came in all camp and, you, you know, kind of felt like she was going to be the strong female lead. But, yeah, she just took a back seat. I feel like, in terms of the screenplay, we were forced to feel for her and her eventual death because she was pregnant. Yeah. And I just need a little more than uh-huh. that. I do feel like she was pushed aside. Um... But yeah, there's uh, it was an interesting scene of her. It felt a little like filler, if I'm being honest, mm-hmm. where David bricks her up essentially, and they have this scene and have this conversation. He's like, "If I don't come back, you just go." She's like, "No, don't go. Don't go without me. No, I have to protect you and to protect the baby." And then he kind of goes, um, kills a soldier. And steals his hazmat suit and then comes back and like saves her. So we have this big emotional speech and then it kind of means nothing because he just comes back anyway. <laughs> and then she's killed by crazies. Um, yeah, I think it's also very interesting that David is immune to the virus. Mm-hmm. But he he keeps the knowledge to himself but I also feel like part of the reason why he keeps it to himself is because nobody would believe him. Yeah. And again, it's a comment on how ill-equipped they are and how bad their testing is and how they have just thrown everyone together in a high school and just been like, yeah. keep them here until we can do something about it. We don't know who's crazy. We don't know who's not crazy. Just chuck him in. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Watts de- actually ends up developing a potential cure for the virus. But when he tries to take samples to Peckham and Ryder, soldiers within the high school don't believe him and he is killed. And the samples are destroyed in a stampede of infected townspeople breaking free from their quarantine. Again, you know, the same as David. It's totally ill-equipped. Yeah. And they've shot themselves in the foot Uh with this one. Depressed and distraught by his experiences in Evans City, Colonel Peckham is ordered to relocate to Louisville 
where symptoms of the virus have been reported. With this last scene, mm. uh, Romero said the only problem they came up with, uh, <laughs> with the problem with the people of uh, Evan City, where the film was being shot, was about the filming of that final scene, uh, where Peckham has to strip down and change clothes before being lifted off by the helicopter. Some of the locals saw the scene as it was being shot and took offence to the sight of a nude man outside. Ramirez said lawyers had to be called in to resolve the issue. <laughs> <laughs> so it's shot from the helicopter um, facing down. It's a bird's eye view. And I, I'm not sure why he has to get fully <laughs> naked to then get dressed again to get on the helicopter. <laughs> But he does, and then that—that's the last image of the film. You know, we know it's now spread to Louisville, and it's probably now going to be a global pandemic because of all of the fuck ups. Yeah, by the military. Uh-huh. Simple as that. Yeah, you know, and then potentially a global pandemic. So it's definitely a comment. Absolutely, a comment on government, the military. Yeah, um, I think it's. I think it's a fantastic film. It is, and it's aged like fine wine. It has, because post COVID, yeah, yeah, it's actually even more interesting and kind of re- relatable in it. In yeah, a certain, no, you of know, course. we here in the UK, and I don't want to get too political ourselves. But, you know, COVID could have been dealt with a lot better than it was. And so it gives an extra edge to a film like this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Particularly something dealing with a virus being mishandled. Yeah. Um, I think it's a great film. There are a few bits that I'm not a huge fan of, but I do think it's aged very well. Yeah. I do. And, uh, you know... Some moments are a bit hokey, you know, and it is. it does look very 70s, but I think it's held up very well. Mm-hmm. And the subject matter is just as relevant now as it ever was. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's great. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. <laughs> I agree. Oh, and I just want to mention the song at the end, because it's something that really lasted with me after the first time I watched it. It's a... It's a choice. It's a ballad. And it, as he's sort of on the helicopter and the helicopter's going, and she's singing, Heaven help us. Like proper go Adeling this song <laughs> at the end of, like a really fucking downbeat film. Uh-huh. It is very, very downbeat. Um, <laughs> just this ballad. It's high camp. It's... It's very seventies. That's it's very seventies. It 70s. doesn't even look out of place in the seventies. Not really. <laughs> it really did stick. I think it's because it was also on the um, menu as well. Uh, <laughs> so he's heard it over and over again every time. Because <laughs> there, there was a document, mini documentary on Lynn Lowry, on the uh, on the Anchor Bay DVD, and I hope it's on the Blu-ray. Um, but on the Anchor Bay DVD, and uh, I used to watch that a lot. I don't know why. I think it, I think it was for film suggestions. So I was like, oh my god, I want to watch I Drink Your Blood. Like, oh my god, I want to watch Cat People. <laughs> I want to watch, oh, what was it? Uh, Sugar Cookies <laughs> as well, which was, uh, I think, a, a softcore porn film. Oh, was it? 
That's not the Romero. Uh, so there was one called Score and one called Sugar Cookies. They weren't okay. they weren't Romero films. No. Well, next up we have the craziest one, 2010, directed by Breck Eisner, and he directed Sahara, The Last Witch Hunter, The Expanse, Taken, the sci-fi TV series, not that Taken. The Invisible Man TV series from the early 2000s, Fort Crimes, Fear Itself, and The Brave. Honestly, Sahara... it's the Matthew McConaughey film. Yeah, McConaughey I don't know how the director remake. of Sahara made this film. Sahara is not, not very good. Um, written by Scott Kozar, who wrote the Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake, the Amateurville Horror remake, The Machinist, oh. Bates Motel, The Haunting of Hill House, Monsterland. Oh. And now Chapel that Way. makes sense. Now that makes sense. Yeah, well, some of the better remakes. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, also co-written by Ray Wright, who did Greta, Case 39, Fatal Desire, and The Pulse remake, which is not a good remake. Oh, no. Uh, and it was made on a budget of... No, I'm just going to remind you, the original was made on a budget of 275000 mm-hmm. The remake was made on a budget of $20 million... And at the box office, it made $55 million. Mm. Decent amount. And it's decent, but I, th- I think you have to bring into marketing and stuff. Yeah. Which I think is quite costly too. So, I mean, there wasn't the crazies too. There wasn't. I'm assuming there wouldn't be the crazies too. I remember this being popular when it was yeah. released. Um, I feel like there's more of an appreciation for it now by people than it was back then. I don't remember people raving about it. I just remember people talking about it. I think there was a backlash by this point Mm. on remakes. I think by 2010, I mean, I made a conscious decision not to watch any of the remakes. Yeah. And I I didn't. You know, the majority of them, I I have watched a lot of them for the podcast. For the podcast, yeah. Really, Uh is the first time I've watched them. Because I did kind of make a conscious decision not to watch the remakes. Yeah. Which is how you... Which is what people probably should do. If you are against something and you don't like something, it's kind of what you're meant to do. Yeah, I mean, like, this news about this Vertigo remake of Robert Downey Jr. I've seen so many people like, please, God, no, please, no. I mean, what difference has it made to you? You don't have to watch it. (laughs) So but what is this going to be made? Just, like, don't... What, it's the people who have an opinion. And I, I don't want to get into trouble. I'm sorry if you are this person. But there's a lot of people who actively dislike certain genres or certain types of films. MCU is an example. And they watch every single second. And they pay their money, they get their ticket, they go to the cinema, and then they go online and tell everyone how much they hated it, <laughs> and how they've lost three hours of their lives. <laughs> you know, add travel onto that, and you're looking at about four to five hours, potentially, you know, and some money if you bought yourself a nice cup of coffee for the <laughs> for the event, and how they've it was awful, and they had such terrible time, and how disgraceful Disney are or whoever are. And I think, well, they don't know that. They know that you've gone in and you've paid for your ticket and they're going to be like, tick, another one, another ass in the seat, another audience member. 
but they're just going to do the same thing again because they don't care about your letterbox reviews. Mr. Disney president doesn't care. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. Uh, but it, I mean, it, it was, I, I am right. I'm right. It was I'm the same. To be nice about it. It was I'm, the same. Because we... obviously I sit here complaining about films. <laughs> like I complain about so many films. That's the whole premise of the podcast. You know, trashy shit we talk about. Yeah. You know, but I do know and, and hope, kind of hope, that the director of LOL didn't listen to the podcast episode <laughs> and get upset. Because I don't think he cares. Because he got she. His, she. She, excuse me. I do apologise. Um, she directed the film and then went on to the next one. <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, it was, it was very much the same sort of thing with the horror remakes throughout the 2000s. Like, everyone would have something to say. Everyone would be complaining about them. But they'd somehow still make money at the box office. Oh. And these people will still have seen them to know that they were terrible um, and so on. Yeah, they go in there, they're eating their popcorn. They come out and they say, just as I suspected, trash. <laughs> <laughs> well, what, what, you know... Go watch something else then. Yeah. I, I actively made a decision not to go and watch these films in the cinema because I didn't want to. Yeah, don't don't watch them at a time. <laughs> Just start a podcast years down the line and then watch them. <laughs> yeah. Also, also, Limitless didn't exist back well, then. Well, yeah. <laughs> so I couldn't afford to go and watch all if these you, films. The thing is, if you want to watch these films, if you want to watch these films to have an opinion on them, if you're like a critic and you have to watch them, but you know you're not going to like... But it's, it's the people that like actively say <laughs> I hate this film I, I really fucking hate this well you're not going to watch the next one then are you surely yeah of course I am well, why <laughs> like, we fucking hated Shazam are we going to watch Shazam 2 absolutely fucking not <laughs> life's too short we were having give the yourself convers- a break earlier today me and Gary were having the conversation about how before I met Gary um, a bit of tea spilling here before I met Gary I did actively only watch films that I was 90% sure that I was going to really enjoy. And I thought Squirm was the worst film I'd ever watched. I was highly disappointed. I thought it was going to be great. That doesn't even reach my bottom 20 now. Okay, so The Crazies (laughs) remake, was that a film you were 90% sure you were going to enjoy? No. And did you enjoy it? I did. You're welcome. (laughs) Well... No one's perfect. <laughs> I can be proved wrong sometimes. In that, and on that note, let's talk about our second feature presentation. <laughs> How long has he been playing a statue? A couple hours now. What is it? Lay at Gundale. Glory? That's making the good people of Ogden Marsh oh, oh, yeah. go crazy. <laughs> Crazies rated R. Starts February 26th. In the town of Ogden Marsh, Iowa, um, is Iowa? Yeah, of course it is. Sheriff David it's Dutton. Pronounced Iowa. Sheriff David Dutton is enjoying a baseball game when it is interrupted by resident Roy entering the outfield with a shotgun, something that causes a dramatic coffee drop. <laughs> Love a dramatic coffee drop. Um, is he enjoying the baseball game? He doesn't look like he's enjoying it. He of course, it's uh, Timothy... Isn't it Team uh, Dolores against the Dodgers? Yeah. yeah. 
Timothy Oliphant. Elephant. Oliphant. <laughs> you said elephant. I said Oliphant. Um, yeah, hunk. hunk hunky. <laughs> hunky Timothy Oliphant. Uh, in this film, it's highlighted how much of a great ass he has. There's, yeah. There's a scene where he's like doing some work early hours in the morning outside. And that camera, that that direction, he he knew the gaze would be watching it. You gotta know your audience, line. you know? You gotta know your audience. The, the gaze were the only ones watching by 2010. They're watching these remakes. David assumes Roy's drunk and attempts to dissuade him, but is forced to kill him when he raises his weapon. Rory's... Excuse me. Shut up. Rory's wife... Did I say Roy? I have no idea. Roy. Rory. His name's Rory. Rory. Why was I saying Roy? Rory's wife and son show up at a mortuary to give David a talon off and a camp slap around the face before storming off. Yeah, the guy's son, whatever his name is, he looks 45 years old. He <laughs> He's got the... He was it Hannah Montana's brother. Yeah, he just... It turned out he was like 35 in real life. And now yeah. when you rewatch, you're like, oh, he is 35. <laughs> I knew that at the time of watching Hannah Montana, and I thought the whole premise was he was sad because he was 35 and living at home, and uh, I, that's, yeah. that's how I looked at it the entire time, yeah. and I thought it was always strange when he was like making friends with Rico down the beach, and it's like, yeah. oh, he's a lot younger than you. Yeah. You're going to have to be a son. <laughs> um, it makes sense now if he was meant to be younger. David gets the slap because he insinuates that Rory was drunk. Yeah. He hasn't had, he ain't had alcohol in two years. No. Slap. The next day, David gets a call at work from the coroner telling him that Rory had no alcohol in his system at the time of the incident. Oh, he judged. Yeah. He judged. David's wife, Judy, the community doctor, has begun to notice another resident, Bill, exhibiting bizarre behaviour, including lifeless and repetitive speech. The next night, replicating the film... Sounds like me on this podcast. <laughs> replicating the scene, opening scene from the original film... Bill locks his wife and his son inside their farmhouse and burns it down. Yeah, number one, his wife looks like Amy Adams. She does. I, when we were first introduced to them, I thought it was his daughter. And like, what is with this place? Like, I think there was something (laughs) in the water making people age at completely different rates to each other. Strange, strangely enough, I don't know if you noticed this, but the town the film is set in actually looked identical to the place from... Uh, a Quiet Place, part two, you know, the, oh, the beginning. Oh, With the baseball field and yeah. the, the shops and everything and how it looked quite old-fashioned. Could just be a set. I mean... I, mean, I have it out. This I'm town is just really s- unlucky. Yeah, really. could be. Could be. I'm assuming they just keep sets available. Yeah. You know, I think a big thing like sitcoms that shared the same set and just had things randomly moved. But if you look closely... Yeah. Yeah. David and Judy go to investigate the scene. Hollywood magic, Gary. That Hollywood magic. Well, apparently. Uh, Bill is just sitting on his truck humming and whistling to himself whilst his house is burning down. It's a great visual, Mm. actually. It took me by surprise. David and Judy and then Bill on his car and, and the house burning in the background. He slightly looks like that meme of that girl that's laughing. With the house <laughs> burning behind her. Do you know that one? I do. But it's actually a really great visual. Yeah. Following the discovery of a pilot's body in a swamp, David and his deputy Russell investigate the area. They discover a military aircraft that crashed into the river a few days before. 
suspecting a link between the contaminated water and the residents' bizarre behaviour, David Lobbers lobbies Mayor Hobbs to shut off the town's drinking water supply. Uh, he's denied, but because he's a bad boy, he does it anyway. Yeah, I... Um, the irony wasn't missed on me when the mayor informs David that as a farming community, the residents are reliant on the water for their crops. As he says this, as he's sunning himself next to his swimming pool. Yeah. <laughs> the residents are reliant on the water for their yeah. livelihoods, but Mayor Hobbs is reliant on it to fill up his swimming yeah. pool. <laughs> Uh, when David and Russell get back to the station, Bill, who has been locked up, is now looking all veiny and infected. Because uh, it's 2010, and let's face it, if we just had people looking normal like they did in the original, people wouldn't go see the film. Yes. It's very zombified. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all communication services are down, and David goes outside to find Lynn Lowry riding around on a bicycle and singing to herself. Hi, Cam. <laughs> High camp. <laughs> it is. It is. Uh, David goes to the mortuary, finds a priest who has had his mouth stitched together, and he's then attacked by the coroner with a bus saw. He manages to turn the bus saw on the coroner and kills him, but the bus saw drops on the floor and makes its way towards his crotch, but Russell arrives just in time to save him. Yeah. So, in and we say, I feel like we say it every original versus remake episode. But the remake has to heighten everything. Yeah. And, and yeah. Yeah. And, and the thing is, if it you're going to do that, you might as well go over the top. Exactly. And that's it exactly works. what this does. This, yeah. this saw having a life of its own. Yeah. It's fucking stupid. Uh-huh. But it's a, it's great. Yeah. It's, it's a horror film. This is way more of a horror film than it's the original. things that, you know, could never have been done with the budget of the original. No. no. Um, so if you're going to remake it with a bigger budget, you might as well go all out. Mm. Soon after, soldiers arrive to quarantine all residents at a high school. The residents are examined for symptoms of infection, and Julie does not pass the examination due to elevated temperature because of her pregnancy. And she's then separated from David. Did you know Judy's pregnant? I did. Because, I mean, <laughs> the film never wants you to forget that. Judy's pregnant. Oh. Every pregnant. five minutes, like, we, we know she's pregnant. If you took a shot every time her pregnancy is mentioned, you would not make it to the end of this film. Um, David escapes quarantine and returns to his office in Catherine Russell. The pair head for the school to free Judy and at the school, infected townspeople breach the perimeter and the military personnel evacuate, abandoning the civilians. Judy wakes up strapped to a gurney alongside several others and school director Ben Sanborn enters and begins killing quarantine people with a pitchfork. Yeah, so the the military is, they're very much less of an entity within this film. Yeah. Because they do fuck off. Oh, yeah. And it's the crazies themselves that are, in many of the scenes, the biggest threat. Yeah. Um, With the, the, the saw and now with the pitchfork. Yeah, but I mean, it's still revealed later on that the military um kill off the people they were evacuating. Yes. So it's that message is still in there. It's just not as prominent as the original, where that they were, like you said, the main antagonists. Yeah. So this is uh, the film is definitely going for the zombie yeah. remake, the Dawn of the Dead yeah, yeah, yeah. remake. Um. So it, it's 
that is the main emphasis. Whereas in the original, the main emphasis was the political commentary. Mm-hmm. N- neither, you know, make either one better or worse because it's the intention of the filmmaker. Yeah. Um, but in this one, it's it's definitely different in that sense. David and Russell arrive and kill Ben, freeing her and Becca, Judy's assistant. Uh, freeing Judy, that is. An old lady walks around outside looking at corpses and asking if Peter called. <laughs> okay. She doesn't ask if Peter called once. She asks, it must be at least a dozen times. Did Peter call? But they're having the conversation, they're talking <laughs> about everything that's going on. And in the background, all you hear is, Did Peter call? Did Peter call? Did Peter call? Did Peter call? Hi, Camp. Hi, Camp. Unable to find a working... Did Peter call? Unable to find a working vehicle. Did Peter call? The four make their way out of town on Did Peter call? Thank you. Oh, you're not as good as Timmy Oliphant. He wasn't... Well, in many ways, you know. That's that's what I have to live with. They encountered Becca's boyfriend, Scotty, (laughs) at his farm. Soldiers raid the farm, shoot Scotty and his mother, and burn their bodies. Scotty, we barely knew the... Good, because he seemed like an arsehole. So. Well, if Scotty and uh, Becca actually both looked their ages. <laughs> they looked like, oh yeah, you are boyfriend and girlfriend. <laughs> you don't look like mother and son or father and daughter. David subdues the soldier and learns that the military has been ordered to shoot all civilians. The group prepares a patrol car in David's garage and are ambushed in David's house by Rory's infected wife, Peggy, and his <gasps> 50-year-old son, Kurt. <laughs> Not Peggy and Kurt. Um, one thing this film has going for it is so many good set pieces. Like, all of the horror scenes take place in the best locations. Like, this takes place in the child's nursery, and it is really creepy. Like... Her being stood behind a door and her tying her to a chair and then she stabs David in the hand and he's like stuck on the floor. It's it's such a good scene. And, and then he uses that it, to yeah. kill her. He literally, he lifts his hand up with the knife still in it and fucking stabs her in the throat. And honestly, this film is so well directed and it makes so many of the scenes like really intense. Yeah, and I think it gives a little glimpse and it's not something that the film does too much or at all after this if correct me if i'm wrong but it humanizes the crazies yeah. because she is enacting revenge on david for shooting her husband yeah she says is this the gun that shot my husband yeah whereas she she's full-on crazy because mm-hmm. she, she's got the vein the veins are popping you know, she look, looks like a bag of shit. <laughs> uh, well, she does. I mean, that's the point. Uh, but it humanises it. So it's not yeah. like your general zombies that are, comp- are completely dehumanised. Yeah. Uh, Russell shoots Kurt through a window and then shoots the pair's corpses multiple times, making Judy think that perhaps something's up with Russell. Mm, took it a little too far. David, Judy, Becker and Russell flee in a car. And whilst on the road, they're spotted by an attack helicopter and drive into a car wash for cover. Uh, Christian Aguilera featuring Missy Elliott starts playing. Uh, sadly not. Small tuna fish is not heard in this film. Um, employees at the car wash attack the car whilst going through the car wash and drag Becker out by the neck with a hose, 
breaking her neck and killing her. I mean, she definitely gets the Judy 1973 treatment in this film. She does. Doesn't, doesn't get a lot to do. She doesn't get a lot to do. Wasn't she in the Friday the she 13th was. remake? She was the main girl in the Friday the 13th remake. Yeah. Um, Favourite car wash scene? It's this. It's not Final Destination. No? <laughs> <laughs> was it, which one's... The, was it the same year? The Part four. The... Fucking stupid fucking I I think it was a year after this. Um That is one I went to see at the cinema. The final destination, you mean the scene where the biggest danger was her getting a clean face from the fucking brush. <laughs> no, she had her head stuck in the sunroof. Yeah, and the brush was about to go over her head. Yeah. What and did... clean her face? Yeah, she was gonna drown. She was not gonna drown. Fucking stupid fucking re- Please go listen to our Final Destination episode. It was in 3D. You'll hear the rant on this. This, people are actually in danger of dying. Um, on the road, yeah, they spotted about, they go to the car wash, Becca dies. When the rest of the group leaves the car to help her, the, holo- the helicopter, the helicopter destroys the car. Whilst walking down the road, the group spots a black SUV speeding towards them, which Russell disables with a police spike strip. The driver, a government employee, reveals that the cargo plane contained a uh, certain prototype and biological weapon called, none other than, Trixie. I was yes. waiting for you to say Oh, that. why are you waiting for me to say it? You enjoyed saying it so much the first time. Trixie Mattel. It was en route to Texas to be destroyed when the plane crashed. Enraged, Russell shoots him and threatens the Duttons. David confronts him about his behaviour and Russell realises he's infected. But begs to continue walking with them. Well, yeah, the government employees a bit like, well, here's the tea. And yeah. w- what are you going to do about it? Uh-huh. Like, oh, it's such a shame. Sorry. Yeah. He, he couldn't give two shits. When he's like, well, people are dying. People have died because of the government's fuck up. Mm-hmm. He's like, yeah, but what are you going to do about it? It's done now. I'm, trying, yeah. I'm just trying to help. Yeah. Russell's <laughs> full on insane now. At a military roadblock, he distracts the soldiers and is killed, allowing the Duttons to sneak past. David and Judy arrive at a truck stop to search for a vehicle, discovering that the military has also executed those who were evacuated. They kill some more infected people and escape in a semi-truck. And as they drive away, a massive explosion destroys Ogden Marsh and disables their truck, forcing them to continue on foot. A view from a military satellite highlights the couple and then the city and the words initiate containment protocol appear. And during the credits, a Cedar Rapids uh, newscaster reports on the explosion in Ogden Marsh stating a perimeter has been set and civilians are not being allowed into the area. An infected person appears on camera and the signal is lost. Now, that was the perfect setup for a sequel. Yes. I'm going get one. I'm surprised because everything's got a sequel. Mm-hmm. Everything gets a sequel. Sequels are hot shit right now. Maybe we might get a uh, Crazies 2 all these years later. Well, now that Santa Clarita diets. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but yes, absolutely solid remake. Solid modern horror film. It's just really, really good. There are a few things that are kind of like, oh, okay, we've seen this. Or, you know, a few things where it's like, I don't know, just doesn't feel too exciting. But in the grand scheme of things, it's just overall really fucking good. 
Yeah, I I think it, for me personally, if I had if this was one of the first horror remakes I'd watched of of that slew of horror remakes, I probably wouldn't have rated it so highly. But comparing it to the others mm. and to the original film, it does what it does really well. Yeah. It's well made, mm -hmm. well acted. It, you know, bulks things up from the first... No, that's not the word I wanted, but it's the word I'm, I'm giving. Um, but it, it adds to the original and makes it into a horror film. The original was a film that maybe could have done with a remake. Yeah. Because the story itself is universal. It, it is a, a, a story that ages very well. Mm -hmm. And to bring that to a modern audience and to make it accessible for a modern audience who maybe didn't get the original and make it more into a horror film and more in keeping with tastes in 2010. Because we sit here and we diss them and we, we've dissed films on the podcast. But, you know, people enjoyed these films. Yeah. There, there's an audience for it. And this is in keeping with that. But actually kept a lot of what was good about the original too. Yeah. The idea of the military and the social commentary. Um, I, I found that interesting. Yeah, it's also nice that it didn't just try and be a scene for scene remake as well. No, it actually no. did something different. Again, making it more accessible to mm. a modern audience. Yeah, and that's what a remake should do. Well, let's find out who's going to win when we get to the awards. Mm. First up, we have cinematography, scares, kills, and soundtrack. Uh, the nineteen seventy three film, the you know, it's micro budget. The cinematography is great. It is that perfect seventies horror cinematography where it's just. Oh, you just can't. I, I, I don't think you can beat it. The eighties is my probably my favorite genre. No, actually not genre. Decade no. even. I don't know anymore. I don't know if the seventies or the eighties are my favorite decade for horror. It's one of the two. I feel like the eighties is more fun. The seventies is more groundbreaking. Um, but I just love that aesthetic. Uh, of seventies horror. Just, I'm a sucker for it. Yeah, I I love the way it looks. Um, it mostly takes place in daylight. Yeah, which you know is very much going against type. I mean, I think this was the same around the same time as The Wicker Man. Um, a lot of horror films, you know, you expect them to take place in the dark, but this still managed to be unsettling whilst being a very bright film. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I just, I love the aesthetic of the 70s. You know, I am a retro film fan and, and probably always will be. Mm. I love the old school look of it. Um, I love that it does look low budget at times. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah, it yeah. adds to the kitsch value. I think it adds in many ways to the camp value. Uh, and that's what I personally am here for. Yeah. So I, I really do appreciate it. Uh, it's more, I'd say it's more disturbing and uncomfortable than outright scary. Yes, yeah, I th I think it's more thought-provoking. Yeah. And I think in it being thought-provoking and the themes that it deals with and the, th uh, the fact that it is very downbeat is what makes it scary. Mm -hmm. It's not a classic horror film. No. It's horror mm -hmm. comes from the relatability to real life. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. The kills are pretty much straightforward standard shootings in the original. It is. It is just shootings. It, it is, which which is fine. I don't, I don't need the over-the-top deaths. Um, ironically, the one that really stands out for me is Kathy's yeah. off-screen shot and uh-huh. close-up and, oh, yeah. you know, that actually sticks with you more than any of the others. Yeah. And the soundtrack is just mostly country music and a really great score. It's it's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, it's very remnant, and it, it's not Goblin, but it's reminded me of Dawn of the Dead yeah. during the action sequences uh-huh. because it is an action heavy film, and it was, and the Heaven Help Us ballad at the end. It's weird, but I liked it. Yeah, uh, well, it's twenty ten. Do you know what? It does have that sort of look of the remake, and we always say this when we have one of these films. It does have that specific look. But I feel like it's probably one of the better looking one, maybe the best looking one, because there are some inventive shots in there. There was. There, there was. is some inventive cinematography. Like I it, the the burning yeah. uh, farmhouse yeah. in the background. I think experimenting with all those different set pieces really paid off. Um, you know, I thought the car wash scene was shot really well. The explosion at the end, I thought it looked good. It looked good. It looked like the other film, but it just, it went a little one step further. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I could see everything. Yeah. Even <laughs> in dark scenes, yeah. I could see everything. Uh-huh. You know, I don't, I'm fine suspending belief mm. about, you know, especially with horror films, you suspend belief. Yeah. I don't need it to look that, realistic no you know stick a fucking light in there so i can see what's mm-hmm. going on and i could so i actually really appreciate that yeah i think it was so much more intense than the original um yes yes it's not so much disturbing but it is intense and it's a lot gorier some really inventive kills in there with some fantastic practical effects yeah no i completely agree and i, and I mean it's I think it's maybe a little unfair to compare something like The Kills. Yeah. Because uh, the intentions are completely different. They are, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but obviously the remake does win it because, yeah. you know, um, they're a lot gorier and, and that. that's what we like. Yeah. <laughs> and the soundtrack, I have the same criticism as the cinematography. Very similar to a lot of other things from around this time. Yeah. It has its eerie moments, though. It has some creepy moments in there. Um but overall, I think I'm going to say cinematography and soundtrack are going to the original, but Scares and Kills, I'm going to give it to the remake. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Yeah. So, it's currently to all. Ooh, Let's get to the characters. It's a draw. <laughs> Give me penalties. As, as for the characters, we have Judy, who was played by Lane Carroll in 1973, and Rada Mitchell in 2010. Poor Judy, in the original, she gets the candy ho edit. She does. <laughs> she's there at the beginning, and then she's nowhere to be seen. Yeah. And then she dies. It's very sad, and it's it's another criticism. And it's a personal thing. Um, you know, don't come at me. It's a personal thing. But in all my films that I watch, I love a strong yeah, female yeah. character. Of course. Any film. Yeah. The romantic comedy... You know, a porn film. I like a strong female character. That is what I'm drawn to yeah. on a personal level. So it did disappoint me that we didn't get that in the yeah. original 
And poor Judy, she had all the bearings to be one, and it didn't quite work out. Yeah. Um, yeah, she had a really promising start, but yeah, just really, yeah, very disappointing. Whereas Rada Mitchell, actually, there was one scene, the scene with the uh, the house on fire where she's shouting at the uh, at, at uh, Bill. Fuck! I forgot she she came to act she like did. she she came to give us a performance. She left neighbors that was behind her. <laughs> the the actress playing her is an Australian. What is it with blonde actresses <laughs> from Neighbors going to Hollywood? I know she was also in Silent Hill. Yeah, um, and and I know it, people love that film. It, it, obviously, it's um, oh my god, it's one of the most famous actresses out there now. What's her name? Barbie. Margot Robbie. Margot Robbie was in uh, Neighbours. Mm -hmm. Um, Holly Valance. She went on to be in Dead or Alive. Melissa George. Melissa George. Yeah, of course, Melissa George. Samara Weaving. Was she in... uh... Potentially. She she is Australian. She she? is Australian. Yeah, Yeah. was she in Neighbours? Potentially. Well, probably not because she was too much like Kylie Minogue. Kylie Minogue. She was in Street, Street Fighter, Fighter yeah. for fuck's sake. Uh, I mean, Ryder Mitchell, <laughs> Judy, she still takes the washing in whilst people are infected and murdering did people. She do that. <laughs> so we're just going to do things normal. I'm a washing's dryer, so I'm going to bring it in. You know, we stand a queen and get things done. Um, so it's going to have to go to Ryder Mitchell. I ain't going to lie, though. The whole thing explodes at the end. It's so a complete it waste of her time. And she does go on far too much about her pregnancy. Um, she does, but she actually gets some dialogue. She actually she does. does something. She um, starts beating up some of the crazies during the car wash scene. So props to you. She's a lot stronger <laughs> than poor Judy from the original. No. Um, we have David, played by Will McMillan in 1973, and Timothy Oliphant in 2010. Try not to judge it on his ass, please. <laughs> um, Will, Mc- brow. Will McMillan. I think Will McMillan puts in a good performance. He's um, he his little sweet scene at the end with Judy. I thought was quite sweet. It was. It was pointless. But pointless. Sweet. But, you know, <laughs> he, he puts in. He tries to give us some dessert. I feel like all my snacks. Tries to give us some emotional value. You know. Yeah, I think he does well, and he is he is the center of the film. He is our lead really and he, he doesn't do a good job he's you know in two minds about the whole thing he's in many ways sort of the moral compass of the film mm. and you know i appreciated the performance i i liked the character which is the whole point um uh, but i do think timothy oliphant um he did have the nicer ass oh, <laughs> he also did all of the above what you just described as well he did he, he did he had a little more substance, I think. He felt. did, yeah. More to him. I feel like, and it's maybe a spoiler alert, but I actually feel like most of the characters were a little more developed. Did you say maybe a spoiler alert? We've just told people the entire fucking film. A spoiler alert <laughs> to my choices. <laughs> to who might win this with our choices for characters. Um. Yeah, no, it's Timothy Oliphant does do a slightly bad job. He does, he does. Um... Next up we have, I've compared Clank and Russell. Makes sense? It makes complete sense. Uh, Harold Wayne Jones in 1973 and Joe Anderson in 2010. Joe Anderson, 10 out of 10 handlebar moustache. Yes, yes. Howard, that was a good moustache. Clank in the original. 
What does he do? <laughs> he was. He was. Uh, he, he kind of felt like he should have been with the uh, racist cops at the start of uh, Dawn of the Dead. He gives that sort of energy. Oh, he was definitely giving uh, best friend um, uh, energy who's just there to die. Yeah. He he felt a little toxic, not going to lie. Um, who knows how long he was crazy for, though. And I, and I like those layers, you know, thinking, well, when did he, you know, become crazy? Mm. Maybe he was from the start. Um but yeah, it, it's it's fine. He was just kind of expendable, wasn't he? Yeah. Like in both films, actually, to be yeah, fair. Yeah, Joe Anderson gets slightly more to do. I think I think his craziness is more uh, developed. Mm-hmm. It's bigger. Yeah. He, you know, he kind of threatens our um, protagonist couple. Mm-hmm. He, yeah, he just has a little more to do. Yeah. More. You're more rounded as character. And finally we have... Oh, so we're giving it to Joe Anderson. Yeah, yes. Of course. Yeah. Finally we have Kathy and Becca. Uh, Kathy played by Lynn Lowry in 1973. And Becca played by Danielle Panabaker in 2010. Poor Danielle Panabaker. She's great in Friday the 13th. But in this, she's just fucking nothing. She doesn't get anything, <laughs> does she? And I think it's kind of one of her... It's a bit like Judy from the, uh, the original. Yeah. Where we're meant to think, we're meant to feel for them because of one simple thing. So yeah. she's the friend, Judy's good friend who she works with. Judy's good Judy. Judy's good Judy. And um, that's kind of it. Cause she didn't get, she got a boyfriend, but the boyfriend dies straight away anyway. Yeah. And she doesn't get anything else. So like Judy in the original, it's like, well, she's pregnant, so we don't have to develop her character anymore. Becca gets no character development. Yeah. Um, that is also true of Kathy in the original. Yeah. But I think Kathy is played by Lynn Lowry, mm-hmm. which automatically makes her legendary. That and her... And her death scene. Yeah, and her performance as well kind of grabs your attention either way. Mm. No matter how much you know about the character, you notice know something up with her. And, and she is crazy from the yeah. start. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So it goes to Lynn Lowry. <laughs> And finally... <laughs> there, uh, wasn't a, there wasn't a chance, was there? <laughs> well, and for our final awards, biggest queen, I've got to give it to Judy in 2010. I completely agree. Because, I mean... She looks after herself. It's the only choice. And she gets more screen time, and <laughs> there is no other choice. Biggest gas. Because both films do struggle with female they characters. They do. They do. They do, unfortunately. Biggest gasp, I'm giving it to Artie attempted to have sex with his daughter, because... Always my biggest gasp whenever we watch that film. Yeah, it's it's a gasp. It's it's not a funny gasp. It's it's a no. jarring gasp. But you know, gasp is still the same. Yeah. Uh, best dialogue I've got. Oh, was that yours as well? Yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah I, can, I agree. Um, biggest uh, biggest dialogue. Best dialogue I've got. Oh. Oh really? <laughs> best dialogue I've heard was. Did Peter call? <laughs> Did Peter call? Did Peter call? I maybe we shouldn't laugh, but I was funny. It was funny. It was just the in the background as they talk. Did Peter call? Did Peter call? And finally, I'm assuming it's Peter. Peter, and not Peter. Peter, the uh, wildlife protection. No, it is Peter. Okay. And finally, that's camp. 
I give it to Knitting Needle Stabbing from 1973. I, I, I kind of agree, but I chose Lynn Lowry's pigtailed cameo in the <laughs> remake because that was high camp. And with that, we have the results. Oh, wow. And much like our poll, it's eight for eight and it's a tie. Oh, it's, it's a tie. It, yeah. Lamar's back and he said it's 50-50. I think that's just. It is. And it's not deliberate either. Yeah. Because we didn't know each other's choices. I mean, getting onto our ratings for both. Oh. Uh, 1973, I give it eight oblivious piano playing sessions out of ten. And 2010, I give it eight phone calls from Peter out of ten. Fuck you. That was mine. (laughs) (laughs) I gave the original eight distracting monobrows out of ten. And uh, Gary's going to edit this, so I say this first. I give the remake eight calls from Peter out of ten. I said phone calls, so it's slightly different. <laughs> so with that being said, um, yeah, it is It is a, a very deserved tie. And they're just two really great films that you should absolutely watch. I would, I would recommend. And I would also recommend watching them together within the same 24-hour yeah. period. Yeah, definitely. I actually would. You won't feel like you're watching the same film No, twice. you won't. You won't. And if you do want to check out both films, 1973 is available on Shudder, Arrow Player, DVD, Blu-ray and VOD. And 2010 is available on Shudder, DVD, Blu-ray and VOD. And if you enjoy the original, I recommend checking out Shivers. It's got that same 70s aesthetic to it, Maulin Lowry. And more people going crazy. More people going crazy, but sexually crazy. Yeah. Uh, if you enjoyed the original, then I recommend watching Day of the Dead. Yes. George Romero, military commentary. Yeah. And if you enjoyed the remake, I recommend checking out The Mist. Um, I don't really know how to explain this. It just kind of gave me the same sort of vibes and tones as The Mist. Small town yeah. vibes. I agree. Uh, I said if you enjoyed the remake, then watch 28 Days Later. Yeah. Um, zombified... Well, I, I say small town, it's set in London, but, you know, I just recommend seeing it with someone. So, it, that, with that being said, it's now time for our best and worst of the month. Oh, it's been a heavy, uh, not heavy one, it's been a busy I one. I mean, ten, both are true. Busy um, one this month. So this month we've actually, aside from doing a little screen marathon and a David Lynch marathon at the cinema, we rewatched films. Uh, we've actually only watched new releases, and aside from podcast films, of course, um, it's been a, it's a close one for the best. Mm. I'll, I'll give you that. Uh, but for me, I'm gonna have to go with Close, which is a new LGBTQ plus drama film. That kind, I mean, it kind of leaves it up to you, your interpretation as to whether it is LGBTQ plus or not. Um, but it is absolutely harrowing and heartbreaking and just... It's a film that will absolutely destroy you. So I'm actually got something nice lined up after. But oh my god, it is a masterclass in acting. It should have won that best foreign language Oscar. Um, but yeah, it's just... It's a perfect film and I really can't recommend it enough. Yeah, I, th- I think particularly coming from uh, a queer place a queer place <laughs> as queer people you know it was uh, it felt very real and very relatable 
and that I think that very much added to it. And I, I'm not saying you can't appreciate it if you're not queer. Well, no, because there's other ways you could take the Abs- story. Absolutely, but I I did think it was very emotional. Yeah, and that it was intended to be very emotional. It was very good, very well acted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, my favorite of the month is a film we watched on the very same day. Yeah, it's Broker. Yeah, neck and neck. Those two, uh, both fantastic films. Yeah, I fucking loved uh, Shoplifters. Yeah, and this is a new film from uh, Hirokazu Koreeda, and he's done it again. You know, it's a film about chosen family. Mm-hmm. It's a film, you know, that moral highs and lows and there's a lot to think about and the characters are so interesting and so lovable and you become emotionally attached and I just think it's something that he does so perfectly. Mm -hmm. I think he's a master of it. I love love every film of his that I've seen so far and I wish to continue to see so there's so many I haven't seen yeah but he's he could very well be one of my favorite directors yeah as for the worst of the month um this was a tough one actually um but it has to go to typist artist pirate king uh which when we did our Glasgow Film Festival episode we spoke about our highlights of the festival so we didn't really speak about this because it wasn't really a highlight um, I don't know if I misinterpreted this film. I didn't get it, perhaps. Um, but it seemed I don't know. It it seemed a little mishandled with its subject matters. Um, yeah, it just really wasn't for me. I felt I was a little confused because I didn't know whether it was meant to be a comedy or not. Yeah. And I don't know if I was meant to laugh at scenes that I did laugh at. Yeah. Um, which isn't good. No. Because, I mean, I should know what's intended mm-hmm. and what's not because it wasn't meant to be a bad film. So if it wasn't meant to be funny, me laughing at it puts it into... Trash the piece category, yeah. really? Because I, I thought it was absolutely hilarious at points, but I don't think that was the intention. No. Um, yeah, it's a real shame, though, because I, I, I did really want to like the film. Yeah. But it has been a fantastic month for films, for new releases. It really has. So I, I think in, in another month, it may not have been the worst. Yeah, but it, it kind of is. I'm sorry. Uh, for honourable mentions, of course, the Glasgow Film Festival films. Go and check out our episode where we talk about our highlights from the festival. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, some BFI Flare highlights, which I will only just quickly mention uh, because we're going to do a full episode on yeah. it. So, Egghead and Twinkie, Lie With Me and Big Boys were all great. Uh, aside from that, other honourable mentions are Cocaine Bear. So much fun. Elizabeth Banks bringing just fucking ridiculous fun to the big screen mm-hmm. uh broker is one of my honorable mentions a scream six the franchise that never fails does it again yes yeah we're both in the camp that enjoyed that film yeah i think most people are actually i think this is probably what do you think yeah no because i know i know scream um or is it five cream 
Five cream. Five yeah. cream. I think that sort of divided people a yeah. little bit, didn't it? But yeah, everyone's entitled to their opinion. Sure. Don't. Um, Infinity Pool. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That was that was something. Yeah, Brandon Cronenberg does it again. It, it was it was a very good something, but it was yeah. something. James. If you ever want to see Alexander Skarsgård ejaculating, this this is your film. And uh, finally, that's a spoiler. <laughs> Not really. Surely. No. Uh, and finally, just an honourable mention from me because someone didn't go and see it. John Wick Four. It is fucking ridiculous at times. Camp, just stupid, stupid fun. And yeah, I highly recommend it. Favourite one from the franchise? Yeah, um, personally, because I do practice what I preach, I made a conscious decision not to go see John Wick Chapter 4 because I didn't enjoy the first three that much. And I heard it was three hours long and I was like, no. You know, I, I could learn a language. In th- I, I mean, I didn't. Did you? No, I did fuck all. But <laughs> I procrastinated. Well, uh, but um, you're yeah. out. That's one you need to see. I can't. Yeah, I, I'm not going to get into John Wick, but every, everyone's telling me I need to watch it. But yes, uh, that is this month's original versus remake. Excuse episode. me. I'm sorry if you got. I have a recommendation Do for you? everyone. Did I miss something out from the end of last month? No, you didn't actually. Okay. They they were the uh, Glasgow Film Festival ones. But I would never finish the episode without recommending 80 for Brady to everyone. Oh, for fuck's sake. Now, if you're listening in America, it's the film's been out for God knows how long. A very long time. But if you're in the UK, I recommend watching 80 for Brady when you can. Because I, I don't think it's going to be out for much longer. I... If you want to see a, if you want to see a Tom Brady vanity project disguised as a buddy comedy with old ladies, then this is your film. Okay, number one, we don't say old ladies. <laughs> Sorry, old icons. Where I when the women old you are talking about are Jane Fonda, Rita Marino, Lily Tomlin, and Sally Field. We don't say old ladies. Old queens. We say Sorry. legends. There's an EGOT there. There's three Oscar winners. There's Lily Tomlin, legends, and I I can I couldn't tell you anything about uh, American football. I couldn't couldn't tell you anything about football, soccer, or, or whatever. Um, but what I can tell you is those four of the most legendary actresses in the same film, and it may not happen again unless we get eighty one for Brady. It may not happen again, so watch it. Yes, let me rephrase it's it. It's camp, it's if stupid. It, it, is, it is camp stupid fun. If you want to watch a film based on four ladies who enjoy watching the Super Bowl, nothing more, that's that's all it's based on, that's all they do. It, it's confirmed, I've, I've read upon it. And turned into something completely ridiculous, then this is this is your film. It's, it's stupid as fuck. But it never told us it wasn't going to no, be stupid. No. no, but it also didn't tell us it was going to be a Tom Brady vanity project. No, so. it didn't. Well, I mean, it was quite prominent. Tom Brady. Yeah, we didn't know until we saw his name come upon the producer credits. <laughs> yeah. And his acting. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but so yes. If you're a fan of <laughs> 80 for Brady, and that, 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 that doesn't include you, George, if you're listening, we already know. You don't have to tell us again. Um, we are Horrorcourt Trash over on Facebook and Instagram, Horrorcourt Trash on Twitter. 
I'm Gaz 92 on Letterboxd, Gaz 205 on Instagram, and GazChris92 on Twitter. And if you care about EGOT winners, then I'm ChrisBarker823 on Instagram and Letterboxd. And give us a rate review and subscribe on iTunes, like a follow on everything else. Next month's Original versus Remake. Would you like to explain yourself? Can I remember? It's Satan's School for Girls. Satan's School for Girls. Of course it is. Yes. Um, explain myself. Yeah, because why, why did you choose this? I typed the words horror remake into Letterboxd, clicked on lists, went from worst to so. lowest to Because we've highest. had too many good ones. And then I saw the words Satan's School for Girls and Shannon Doherty, and I was like, you're on. That's it. Yeah. That's the one. And we'll be back on Tuesday with Josie and her motherfucking pussycats. Yes. Like, well, I say very, that. I've never seen it. Very but... excited. I feel like it's going to be our exact type of film. It's, it's given millennial goodness. Yes. We'll be back same time, same place on Tuesday. Bye. Bye.